This is week number 16 in our discussion of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 4. You remember last week we talked about, um, we've seen Nebuchadnezzar uh, give Daniel the details of his dream, and then last week we walked through the interpretation that Daniel gave back to Nebuchadnezzar. You can remember after Nebuchadnezzar finished giving Daniel the details of his dream that it caused terror, really, in Daniel's heart. It caused him to be very alarmed. And even though he didn't say anything, this must have been very apparent to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Maybe Daniel was, you know, speechless or couldn't get his breath or not exactly sure how it impacted him, but it impacted him to such a degree that Nebuchadnezzar spoke to him before Daniel ever started to give him the interpretation of the dream, recognizing that Daniel was upset, saying, "Um, don't let this upset you. I I really want to know the interpretation, so go ahead and give it to me. So Daniel begins to lay out all that he sees in the dream. And you remember he described again the, the great tree that was high enough that it could be seen from the ends of the earth, full of foliage and fruit and large branches, large enough that all the beasts of the field could be underneath the tree and that the birds of the air could sit on its limbs and that it was enough fruit that it could feed all the peoples of all the nations everywhere. So this great, great tree, Daniel repeats what the, uh, what the watcher had said to Nebuchadnezzar and then Uh, the tree is totally destroyed. And Daniel, again, goes through that. It's chopped down. The branches are broken off. The foliage is stripped. All the fruit is cast onto the ground. And so you have this great tree that is totally decimated. And, you know, before that happens, Daniel looks at Nebuchadnezzar and he says, this great tree that's so majestic represents you. And so, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was feeling pretty good about himself. He's this massive tree that has influence over all the earth, but then comes the decree that it's going to be chopped down. And so you see that Nebuchadnezzar's downfall is going to be great. And and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, this is a decree, this is a judgment from the God Most High that this is going to happen to you and that you're going to be totally decimated to such a degree that you are going to lose your mind, that you're going to act like you're an animal, that you're going to be cast from all of mankind, you're going to go out into the field, and the dew will fall on you, and you're going to eat grass like all the other animals, and this condition will persist for seven periods of time. But then the little gleamer of hope in this interpretation given by Daniel is that the stump and its root systems will not be uprooted, that the stump will be left and all the roots will be intact because then Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that what this represents is that after this seven periods of time, your kingdom will be restored to you. So there's this expectation at the end of this hope and this satisfaction, but there's this terror that is going to have to happen before we get to that point. And so Daniel, in, in honesty and um, what he truly feels, is concerned about what Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to go through. So you remember at the very end, he gives Nebuchadnezzar a piece of advice. After he's done the interpretation, and he says, O king, 
turn from your sins and do righteous and become righteousness, really. And then he gives them a parallel statement, and he says, uh, "Flee from your iniquities and have mercy on the poor." And you know, we talked about that. If if Nebuchadnezzar just has mercy on the poor, is God then going to stay the judgment? And so is Daniel basically giving him a prescription of works to do in order to be um, uh, passed over for this judgment? And that's not at all what Daniel is saying. You remember, these are parallel statements that when he says, turn from, flee from your iniquities and do good to the, and have mercy on the poor, that that's equivalent to fleeing from your sins and having righteousness in your life. And we talked about that's the same thing that Jesus Christ said to the, um, to the rich ruler who said, I keep all of the law. And he said, well, then sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man went away very sad because what Jesus was trying to reveal to him was the condition of his heart, that while he may have externally done these good, righteous deeds, that his heart truly was not righteous. And it's the same thing that the book of James gives us in chapter 2, that if you have no works to go along with your faith, then your faith is indeed dead. Because what is true in the heart, the, the faith, the righteousness that's true within, will then be externalized and shown in the things that you do in your life. And that's what um, Daniel was calling Nebuchadnezzar to do. He said, was, you know, flee from your sin and become a righteous person. And if you do that, then you can exemplify that by having mercy on the poor. But of course, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take his advice. And so the, the treachery and the, the dread comes upon him. And we'll see that today as we begin down in verse 28 of, the, uh, of chapter 4 of the book of Daniel. So we just read from verse 28 through the end of the chapter. So in Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 28, there the scripture reads, All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king, Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and by the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, <clears throat> immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So here we have the, really the conclusion of this scene of Nebuchadnezzar the great tree and how it, it plays out. And you notice um, that in very rapid succession that Daniel, um, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, right? Nebuchadnezzar quoting what Daniel said to him. But Nebuchadnezzar goes on and just very quickly says, and all these things that Daniel said did indeed happen to me. So just very succinctly that, you know, we, we said this, that as Daniel gave this interpretation, the reason he's so horrified is because there is no possibility that everything that he's getting ready to say will not happen. Why was that true? Why, did, why was Daniel so certain that this would happen exactly as he had seen it in the dream? Why would he be so certain? All right, he did walk with God, and, and, and what was said in the dream itself? That this is a what? This is a decree from the Most High. Isn't when the Most High says something, there's no possibility that it will not happen. Daniel fully understands that. Now, Nebuchadnezzar does not. Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, um, at one time said, what God is there who can save you from me? And that's the kind of attitude he has now because he's up on his rooftop. How long has it been since Daniel gave the interpretation of the dream? Twelve months. So it's not going to happen, right? It's already been a year, so it's not going to happen. Daniel, you know, maybe saw something, maybe he got it wrong, but this is not going to happen. And Nebuchadnezzar is surveying, you know, his great city. He's up on the roof. And so he is full of himself. He is full of self-reflection and giving himself honor and praise. Because look at this majestic city that I built. And, you know, we talked about this. Several of you have said this, that Nebuchadnezzar was known for his building projects. I mean, that's clearly documented in history. I mean, he built canals all over the place. He built great walls. You know, um, Nebuchadnezzar is the one credited with building uh, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon. You know, I went and did some research on the hanging gardens of Babylon. Supposedly, um, he built this, um, these hanging gardens for his wife, for Amethyst because she was from the land of Media, which was very beautiful and lush um, uh, foliage and plants and all. So he built these gardens 75 feet up in the air, 400 feet long. And 
if you're going to have gardens that far up in the air, then you're going to have to water them somehow. And so they built this elaborate watering system that came out of the river Euphrates and, and had to then lift the water 75 feet in the air to water these gardens that then hung down all the way down to the earth. Now the interesting thing about the hanging gardens of Babylon is one of the, one of the seven great ancient wonders of the world, right? Nowhere in Babylonian documents do you find them mentioned. Not described at all. There, you, you go read the Greek documents and the Roman documents, they're everywhere. They all talk about the hanging gardens of Babylon, but in the Babylonian garden documents, not even mentioned. Can't find them anywhere. So the real question is what? Did they even build them? Or did the Greeks and Romans just make it up? Because there's no evidence anywhere that they actually existed by the people who supposedly saw them and lived during, while they were still erected. David, yeah. One thing, I was actually researching it this morning. Yeah. Nineveh is actually where they have uh, manuscripts or tablets that right. actually show the hanging gardens. Yeah, and, and you, you'll find them all in the Roman documents also, but you don't find them in the Babylonian right. documents. So it's like, why not? Because there's all other kind of things written about in the Babylonian documents that, you know, that Nebuchadnezzar did, but nothing about these gardens. So, don't really know about that, right? That's why they're called the ancient one. What, there are seven ancient wonders of the world, right? Which ones still exist today? Just the pyramids. The others are nowhere to be found. But the pyramids that the Egyptians built are still there, right? Not all of them, but the largest ones are still there. You can go visit them today. You can go take pictures of them. Go ahead, Anna. I, I had a chance to visit Egypt. Yeah, I know. You've been all over that place, haven't you? Well, not all I heard your story. Right. And he stamped it on top of the names of the original builders of many of the things in Karnak, <laughs> where you play the temples and right. tombs and things. And apparently that was something that was a common practice of successors to rulers. Or especially if you took a, a foreign nation, you would do the same thing. Yeah, and then, so there's, it's possible Nebuchadnezzar it's, was so surprised, especially when he went berserk, he went nuts. And that was well documented. Mm-hmm. And absolutely despised. And someone was ruling the country at that time. Yeah. Who was that guy? I don't know whether it was son or grandson. I, I couldn't find that out. Or Daniel, maybe. Uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but it's possible if it was a successor, he figured, okay, this Nebuchadnezzar's never coming back. Let's take credit for everything he did for the future generations. Mm-hmm. Maybe I did it. I don't know. Um, but the ruins of Babylon were pretty much, you can't really tell if they were seven stories. That's right, that's right. But I just remember seeing in Egypt that, and what gave it away was the cartouche of that pharaoh was deeper than all the other carvings there in Karnak. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Rub the other guy's name out and put your name in. I'm just speculating here, but that just seemed to be, um, not just that one pharaoh, but other places in Turkey was similar. Yeah, there's no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar was a great builder. 
That's not disputed at all. And so as he looked out over Babylon, it is majestic, and it is glorious. And he can see his handiwork, or at least the, the handiwork of the people he enslaved to build the things that he wanted built, right? He can see that as he looks out from the palace. And so what he's looking at, he describes accurately, okay? But his thought about all of this is, um, is that it's his work, and it's because he's so great. Now, you know, we've talked about this bunches of times, about the, the many gods that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped, okay? But there's one primary god that he would worship, and who was that? I mean, it's in Daniel's name. Bell, right? The God called Bell. Now, Bell has um, several names um, from the ancient world. And so an equivalent name of Bell would be Marduk. Okay, same God, just a different language. And so I, have, I went back and I looked at what Daniel's, I mean, what Nebuchadnezzar's thoughts were about this God Marduk. And this is from his, his inaugural speech when he, you know, we talked about this, when the coronation of a king is his first year and then the next year would be called the first year of the king. So in his second year, it's really his third year and all of that. Well, in that time, here's, here's the way that Nebuchadnezzar thought at the beginning. And then I, I believe this is still in his heart when he looks out over all of Babylon. He says, O merciful Marduk, May the house that I built endure forever. May I be satiated with its splendor, attained old age therein with abundant offspring, and receive therein tribute of the kings of all regions from all of mankind. And that's exactly the position that Nebuchadnezzar is in at this time, right? The whole earth is under his control. He's defeated all of his enemies. And even though in, in the documents it doesn't talk about him as a warrior, that was probably his greatest trait, was to be able to defeat any army that came up against him. He did it to um, everybody in his region and even in Egypt. He pushed them back into their own country. He defeated even the pharaohs. And so this is where Nebuchadnezzar's mind is at as he stands on this um, on, on top of his palace is that the gods have helped me, yes. I've had the favor of Marduk, but this is what I have done. This is what I have put in place. This is the work of my hands. I mean, you can see, that's what he says, right? I mean, he, he comes up and he says, 12 months later, as you walk on the roof of the royal palace, the king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and by the glory of my majesty. So he is all self-consumed at this point. He, is, um, he has done great work. There's no debating that. But he's self-centered about it. And so at that very moment, the scripture goes on. This is actually Nebuchadnezzar himself talking when he's given this great decree to all the peoples and all the lands. And he says that while the word was in the king's mouth, verse 31, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. 
<clears throat> Some of you have a different translation. Instead of it saying sovereignty, it says what? The kingdom has been removed from you. Now, we'll go on. And then we'll come back to it. Okay. Um, so, the, the word is spoken to him from heaven, right? So, we don't know exactly who's speaking here, but you, who would you guess is speaking? This is probably God himself, right? Talking to Nebuchadnezzar. It's a voice from heaven. It's not um, a watcher who came down from heaven and speaks from him. This is heaven itself speaking down to him. So this is probably God himself saying, that did it. You know, that, that's the last straw. <clears throat> and then he repeats the decree that has been given before. Now this is what? Five-fold decree? What are the five things that are going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? says it right there in the next verse. What are they? First one is driven from mankind. Don't know how that happened, right? Have no idea what that means, but it sounds like he didn't go peacefully. Okay? So he's driven from mankind. Second, he's going to go live with the beasts of the field. Third, he's going to eat grass like cattle, right? Cattle. Fourth, all right, it's going to last for seven periods of time. Don't know what that is, right? But we'll talk about that in a minute. And then the last one, this is the important one. What? Until you recognize that the Most High rules over the realm of mankind, right? So that's the five things that are going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. And you notice that it doesn't take long because verse 33 starts with what? Immediately. So as soon as he spoke it, the word came from heaven and this happens. You know, you don't know if they come and drag him or if he goes crazy and they recognize it and and send him away. Don't know exactly how it happens, but this you know is exacted immediately. There's no delay. Now, the, the most important part of all of this, and the whole point of this whole chapter, is what? Yeah. This goes to recognize that God is the sovereign one and not Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? That's the, because the whole theme of the book of Daniel is what? He determines the times and the epochs, and he establishes kings and remo- it says removes kings and establishes kings. Meaning what? What's the what's the whole point of all of the book of Daniel? Not only is he in charge, it's more than that. He controls everything. He's involved in the affairs of men. When you talk, start talking about setting up kings and removing kings, you're, you're no longer macro, right? You're micro. You're micromanaging your creation. And that's what he does. He has the right to, and he does do that. It's his creation. He can do with it whatever he well pleases. And that's the whole point of the book. So this, this chapter 
is in perfect keeping with the theme of the book of Daniel. And I want to show you something. This, this thought is not just repeated here, right? You see it in, this, in, the, in verse 32. Is that the right verse? Yeah, 32. Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And then he goes further and he says, and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So if someone is a ruler on the planet over people, what is true? That God wished for that person, not hopeful wish, right? (coughs) It was pleasing to him that that person would be in power. Regardless, no conditions, no good guy, bad guy, doesn't matter. That those who rule over people are established by God. They would not be in that position if God had not desired for them to be there. Regardless of how they rule and their character and their morality, doesn't matter. Nebuchadnezzar was not a good guy. Bad guy, right? I mean, killed, slaughtered people who he took off into captivity, slaughtered people back in their homeland. He didn't care. Killed the women, killed the children, destroyed them all. Didn't care. So he's not a good guy, regardless of how we think about it from this distant future, right? I mean, he, he, was, he wreaked havoc in other people's lands. And if he did it to the Jews, he did it to other people. It's not just the Jews who he did this to. Okay, so this is the guy that we're talking about. Now, I want to show you back in chapter 4 and verse 17, when the watcher comes down and speaks. This is how you know this is a very important point all these details are because he says in verse 17 this is uh, Nebuchadnezzar quoting the watcher he says this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is the command of the holy ones in order here's the purpose that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes And then Daniel, when he's interpreting the dream, down in um, verse 25, Daniel comes back and he says, You will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the fields. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes. This is the point of the whole thing. This is the whole reason chapter 4 is included. Because this is Nebuchadnezzar coming to the stark reality that God bestows the rule over mankind on whom he wishes. And there's no debating it. It's repeated three times in this chapter. And then at the end, Nebuchadnezzar will say the very same thing because he does understand what this is all about. Okay, up to this point, when he's up on his palace roof, he doesn't get it. Even though he's seen miracle after miracle, even though he saw the three saved from the furnace and his hand uh, stopped from causing them harm, he still doesn't get it. He's clueless as to this. Now, at the time when he's reciting this, he at least understands that point. But as it happened, he was clueless. 
All right, so this, this judgment, because of the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar, is decreed on him all three times that we just read. says this is a, a decree from the Most High. Daniel wanted to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar understood that. This is God telling what's going to happen because of his arrogance and his sin and his pride. And so we, we go on here and the, the word is fulfilled. He's driven away. And so his hair grows like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. All right, so let's talk about this. How fast, at what rate, do your fingernails grow? I had to go research this, right? Now, I used to bite my fingernails so you never could tell, but I quit that, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And so I had to clip my nails just like you do, and I have to do it pretty often. So that gave me a clue, but how, what, what's the typical rate of fingernail growth in the adult people? I'm asking. I want you to guess. Because I would have got it wrong. Quarter of an inch every month. That's one guess. That's pretty fast, right? Quarter of an inch a month. Anybody else got a venture or a guess here? Half that. An eighth of an inch a month. Half an inch. Half an inch. That's really rapid, right? It's about three millimeters. Yeah, yeah. Well, how many millimeters are there in an inch? 25.4, right? Come on, you who know metric, right? So it's a little over a tenth of an inch. A little over a tenth of an inch a month, a month. Okay? Now, now the, the study that I saw does say that for pregnant women it's faster because the hormones are juicing. It also says the longer your fingers are, the faster it grows. Because well, it has to do with the, with the distance between this joint and the base of the fingernail. You know, the only part of your fingernail that's actually alive is the part that's under the epidermis. The rest of it is just there, right? I mean, it just gets pushed out, just like the blades of grass grow from the bottom up. So your fingernail grows from the cuticle, from the part under the epidermis out, right? So, but that, that's the, I didn't say that's yours, it's the average. And also they grow faster in the summer than in the winter, Okay, because it all has to do with the activity of the fingers. And maybe if you're one of those people who uh, is always on a keyboard, it's a little faster. Or always playing the piano or a musician, theirs will be a little faster. But the average, the average is three millimeters a month. Why don't we do a study for class? We could do that. We could do that. I'll leave that to y'all, okay? So... If your fingernails are going to grow to be like bird's claws, how long is that going to take? Well, not a parakeet, okay? 
seven periods of time, of course, right? That's if you don't break one, right? <laughs> now, I've never broken a fingernail. I've lost fingernails, but I've never broken them. But that happened around my house all the time. Six women, there's always broken fingernails, right? And it's a, it's a catastrophe. <laughs> there is nothing worse, right, on the planet. Got to file that thing back, and you're going to have to you're gonna look stupid for a long time. <laughs> right? I know all about that kind of stuff. Three millimeters a month. A little less than an inch and a half a year. Something like that. So that, that starts sounding reasonable, right? Inch and a half in a year? Well, that's three millimeters a month. Okay, because there's 12 months, and 3 times 12 is 36, and there's 25.4 millimeters in an inch, so about 1.4 inches in a year. So, starts giving us a clue as to what, what are these periods of time, right? Certainly, one year would be enough for your fingernails to be like a bird's claws, right? So, it could be seven months, right? Well, then let's talk about the hair, okay? How fast... Does your hair grow? And this one I think is pretty good. (laughs) Didn't see anything about pregnancy, about hair growing. All other kind of things happen to your hair when you're pregnant. But growing faster was not one of them. Right? How fast does your hair grow? Quarter inch a month. We've got one. How much? An inch a month. I'd have to get a haircut very often. What? What? Okay, how, let's do that. <laughs> about, about, well, it'd be 12 millimeters, about a half an inch a month. And that's about right. I go usually get my hair cut every four weeks, and it's grown about a half an inch. You know, so. Yeah, some more than others. Mark's hair, I'm just not going to go there. And, well, he doesn't have any. So, so about a half an inch a month. So if your hair is going to grow to be like eagle's feathers, and I think that probably speaks more to being matted than it does to the length because it's going to be nasty, right? <coughs> Never going to comb his hair, and he's going to be out in the dew. and gonna, you know, It's just going to be nasty. But... If he's there for seven years, as some would say, his hair is three feet long, right? Grows six inches um, a year, right? Half an inch. That, that's, that's pretty long. Right. Well, at this point, he didn't, right? He did, yeah. <laughs> That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> all right, enough of all that, right? So you can see that seven years is certainly long enough for this to happen. Maybe seven months is long enough for this to happen. So we, we still don't know what periods of time, but it's, you ought to think about these things anyway, right? Now, God could have done whatever he wanted to with Nebuchadnezzar. He could have given him the hormones that he gives a woman when she's pregnant, and his fingernails could have sprouted, right? I mean, if he wanted to, he could physiology, physiological do anything he wanted to, right? 
I mean, he rules over mankind. If he can make your mind go crazy, he can shoot you full of hormones. So make your glands produce hormones that they don't normally produce. I don't know. But anyway, you start seeing that certainly seven years is long enough, maybe even only seven months is long enough. So um, as that discussion we had back whenever, um, the period of time is not what's important. Um, the real importance of this whole thing is what? He rules over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. He doesn't rule it directly until the perfect one returns. Then he'll rule it directly. Go ahead. The only thing I would, I would say that I would lean toward... Lean, okay. Yeah. Is in verse 29, 12 months later, he was walking. So I think period, it wouldn't be seven months, or he would have used months again. Maybe. Maybe. Anyway, that's the way I would read. Why didn't he say a year instead of 12 months later? Don't know, do we? Don't know. By the way, when you get to the Jewish years, which we will get to, Clearly, in this chapter, we'll get to it. How many days in a Jewish year? Exactly. 360. Unless, unless it's time to move the calendar because the moon, we've now gotten the seasons out of whack because we're only using 360 days instead of 365. And so every now and then they throw in a 13th month to push the seasons back. So we'll have to talk about all that, right? Leap month. Yeah, so we'll talk about all that when we get there. Just that's precursor, right? Yes, we will go into that kind of detail. You have to. You have to if you're going to actually study it. Okay, so we've, we've got this, um, this judgment. And this is a judgment, by the way. That word decree could be as well as interpreted as a judgment. So this is like a judicial verdict that's being exacted in Nebuchadnezzar's life decreed from on heaven by the angel by the watcher and then Daniel made clear remember when he said it this is a decree of the most high so that Nebuchadnezzar would know this is just not some angel or just some person talking this is the sovereign one who's declared this and so it's, it's going to happen exactly as it says as he said it would, and it does. Here we see it, um, that everything has been said about Nebuchadnezzar, the um, being driven from mankind, the eating the grass, um, the being in the field, uh, to the dew falling on his body, his fingernails growing, his hair uh, growing. All of that happens exactly like Daniel said it would. And then immediately, I mean, without talking about that, that seven periods of time at all, just says it happened, this is what happened, and then immediately Nebuchadnezzar ends all of that, and he says in verse 34, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. Okay, now several things here that we, we need to talk about. Nebuchadnezzar is in the field, out of his mind, grazing like a cow, eating grass, living like a wild animal. 
what causes him to turn his gaze toward heaven? Or does the other come first and then he turns his gaze toward heaven? What, what happens here? There has to be something because he's been out there for seven years and that are seven periods of time. Okay, it had been decreed that it would only be seven periods of time. So, you know, I kind of wonder, Daniel, pretty sharp guy, right? He would have recognized that this is about the time. So maybe Daniel's nearby, could be, you know, because he would, I mean, he knows it's going to end. If it started, not only does Daniel know it, everybody knows it, right? Because the decree and the, the whole thing that Nebuchadnezzar recites here did not happen in a private setting. He called all of the scholars together, and they couldn't do it. So then Daniel comes in, and in front of all of the scholars, he gives this interpretation. So this is not private. So everybody knew this was about the time when he's supposed to turn back. That's one thing, and it had been decreed. Go ahead, Tracy. So are you saying that they knew what seven periods of time were, even though the Scripture doesn't eliminate what that means? I would think so. I would think so. Um, you know, if it's moons, then we've had many moons, so it wasn't seven moons, right? Or maybe it's the seventh moon. Or if it's months, or it certainly wasn't days, okay, because your fingernails can't grow that fast, okay? And, you know, is it their years, however they counted years? I actually don't know how the Babylonians counted years. Um, you know, so we don't know, but I would think that those major marks of periods of time, they would be on watch. And, you know, if it's seven years and everything else has already happened, right? Yeah, I don't look at any of that. Yeah, I think they're all crazy because nobody knows the time. You can't even guess it. Right? You know how you'll know when Christ is coming again? When you're not here anymore. Then you can start the clock. Right? Seven years. Then you can start the clock. Seven years and so many days. Right? We'll look at all that also eventually. You know, because there's this gap at the end. If you actually parse it all out, it's 45 days if you have to figure out what happened. We'll get there. What's that? That's right. Yeah, you know, and I kind of think he knows now. That's just me. That's just me, okay? Sitting at the Father's right hand. He's not waiting for him to say, go. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just don't see it that way, right? Grand scheme of God um, being played out exactly according to how they planned it before the earth was formed. That's what's happening. So... Um, where was I? Oh, this happens. Okay, what causes Nebuchadnezzar to turn his gaze toward heaven? What's that? The grace of God because... Why would you say that grace has anything to do with this? Well, he does. So this is, this is like merciful, right? I mean, this would be grace. This is mercy of God that it doesn't go on forever. 
that doesn't die out in the fields. Because he could have. God could have decreed <laughs> that you'll go to the fields and you'll never get your mind back and your kingdom won't be yours and you'll die as a wild animal. He could have done that. But he didn't decide to do that. Why not? Why did God not do that? He was in charge. Exactly. Because he wants this known by all the peoples. If you go back, you know, the three decrees, right? If you look at the first one, we'll do that. That the, that the watcher says, you'll notice his language is a little different than everybody else's. This is back in, is it verse 17? 417, where he says, look at the very end. Mm. No, in the middle. And this is the decision, is a command of the Holy Ones in order that who may know? The living. Everybody. This is why God does this. It's so that the whole world will have this recognition. I actually think that's probably why Nebuchadnezzar makes this proclamation. Because he got it. That it wasn't just for him. Now it is for him, but it's broader than that. It's for everybody. So that the whole world will recognize this. This is a God, again, using Nebuchadnezzar to do what he desires to do, which is make his name known to the whole world. He's already done that once, right? When? (coughs) He's already done that once in the book of Daniel by the time we get to where we're at. When they came out of the furnace. Who's there? Peoples from every region that Babylon controlled, right? So when they, yeah, they're all looking at him and going, you didn't get burned. You don't even smell like fire. Your hair is not even singed. And so we talked about this. When they went back, that's the message they took. And not only that, but after they came out of the furnace, what did Nebuchadnezzar say to all those guys to get his control back? Yeah, anybody say a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And and the typical um, penalty by Nebuchadnezzar, you'd be torn limb from limb, right? And your house will be made of rubbishy, right? And so that that proclamation was taken back by all these leaders to everybody everywhere. God using Nebuchadnezzar to speak to the whole world. That's what's going on here. That's what he's doing. That's the whole purpose for chapter 4. That's why it fits into the theme of Daniel, even though the liberals say this is craziness. It's a perfect example of what God is trying to do. Go ahead, David. Maybe I'm jumping the gun a tad, but... Well, it would never happen before. At the very end of the chapter, in addition to the message that God is sovereign, Nebuchadnezzar gets something of the character of God as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Yep. Well, let's go ahead and move toward all of that that Nebuchadnezzar says. Okay, now listen to these words carefully. Not my words, the words that Nebuchadnezzar spoke. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, by the grace of God, does get restored to his right mind. Okay, and rec- think about it now. Nebuchadnezzar out in the field raises his eyes toward heaven and his mind's restored and what does he see? Yeah, my fingernails are like bird's claws, my hair's a mess, right? 
I'm wet with the dew of the field. I'm out here with wild animals or any people around. I mean, that's what he sees. So he recognizes, I mean, he, right, right mind restored. He remembers what the dream was, what the interpretation was. And now here he is. This must be the end of the period. He wouldn't have known it until that point, but he recognizes what's happened. So having that recognition, he says, and um, my reason returned to me, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, meaning what? God just doesn't care about anybody on the planet. No. no, that's not what he's saying. What is he saying? They're counted as nothing. The inhabitants of the earth counted as nothing. In compared to God's sovereignty, we are nothing. Nebuchadnezzar was nothing. His had no power whatsoever to make his will happen. Go ahead, Bob. <coughs> How does this lesson then teach us about the free will of the man? <laughs> so we're going to go there. You know, is, is there really a free will? of? Well, yeah, I'm not going to go there. I'll just tell you, this is the great argument between Luther and Erasmus, right? Freedom of the will or the bondage of the will. There are documents written by those guys. Those are the ones I suggest you read first. And, you know, Erasmus was about that thick. It's a pamphlet, actually, because there is not much evidence about the freedom of the will. And then Luther's was about that thick because there's abundant evidence about the bondage of the will. So you ought to go read those documents, okay? And then we'll talk about it. Come back and tell me that you've read those documents and then we'll talk about it, okay? Because it's a great, great debate, right? Right? I mean, because is there really, and, and this was one of the questions I had for you, but I ba- ba- passed over it. When Daniel gave his advice to Nebuchadnezzar to turn from his sin to, to righteousness, was he even capable of doing such a thing. And is anybody capable of doing that? Would then the question go, right? And your answer to that would be? A good reform thought is no. Unless what? God gives you the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the mind to understand. Then yes. And by all means, yes. So our will cooperates with God's. And we could go back to our discussion in the Gospel of John, right? I mean, we exhausted this subject, even though it was difficult to receive. Remember the two, po- the two lines of truth that run parallel, never intersecting, right? That God is sovereign, but men are responsible, right? Remember that? Okay. That's where I'll leave it. Because we, we talked about it for months as we went through the book of John. And we saw it not just in one passage, remember? It's everywhere in John. As you walk through the pages, it's everywhere. That truth is repeated multiple times. So my personal response, no, Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do it. He was advised to do. So he didn't do it because he couldn't do it. 
because it wasn't God's timing. Now the question comes, at this point, is it God's timing or is it not? Because Nebuchadnezzar goes on, right? He has more to say just than that um, God, and this is what your point was, David, not just that his dominion lasts forever, not just that he's sovereign over the creation. He gets that, right? I mean, I think Nebuchadnezzar would say amen and amen. He made me go crazy. He did exactly what he said. He reestablished me in my rule. He can do whatever he wants to, and he does. I don't, Nebuchadnezzar had no problem with any of that. None whatsoever. All right, then you, because it happened to him. I mean, he'd been a fool to say that God can't do whatever he wants to, right? And then he even says, no one can stay his hand. You can't stop it. Once it's been decreed by God, there's give up. There's nothing that's going to stop it from happening. And there are many things that have been decreed by God, not the least of which at the end, his son reigns supreme and the evil one is cast into the lake of fire. That will happen because it's been decreed by God. And, go ahead. And he's a king, so he understands sovereignty. He does. He does. I mean, he's, he's had this rule. Who can stop my hand from harming you? Well, the sovereign one can. And he did. But he didn't learn the lesson. Here he gets it because he repeats it back. So I have no problem in agreeing that Nebuchadnezzar understands this. Okay? And then he kind of repeats in verse 36. At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and nobles came seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and and surpassing greatness was added to me. So compared to how it was before he went crazy, after he went crazy, what's true? He recognized it, but it's even greater than it was before. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Yes, we, everything, yes, everything was restored to him and more. That's your point, I think. Right. Okay, now, verse 37. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, he's been, this whole chapter is a quote from Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true, and get this, and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar understands that perfectly. But the one that you that really, really you got to think about, and all his ways are just. just. That's awesome. So so what is Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> saying by the great sovereign one? That he was just in judging Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar must recognize what? His own, right, which would be, we would put a label on it as sin. So he's, he's recognizing and admitting his own sin and that the judgment of God was just. I got what I deserved. So he recognizes all of that. Is that enough to save a man? <coughs> Is that enough to save a man? No. But what about the thief on the cross? I mean, when you read this, I think what he is saying justifies the fact that he may. I can't judge that he's saved. 
Right. He could be scapegoated. He could be. I wouldn't disagree with that. Right. But you need to think about this. How is his life after that? Well, we don't know. We don't know. This is the last we know of him in the book of Daniel, right? He's gone. The next, the next um, chapter is... 20 years later. Yeah, at least, maybe 30 years later. <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar's been gone for a long time by the next time the next chapter comes. Okay, so we don't know. We don't know. So I, when, when you struggle with something like that, first you think about it for a long time, right? You pray over it, God, the Spirit of God living within me, illumine my mind, show me the truth, help me to think rightly, help me to divide the truth rightly, all of those things. And then even if you do all of that, you come to, I just don't know. Don't know. So then I usually go read guys who are dead. Right? Because then they can't influence me directly, right? And so I don't read many modern commentaries, even by guys I really like and appreciate. I usually read the commentaries of dead people, okay? Because they can't defend themselves and I'm not influenced by... Well, I am. You read their autobiography and you're very influenced. But So that's where I usually go. Go ahead. He would, have, he would have agreed what he would not have agreed with, that when Washington crossed the Potomac, it was God who was protecting him. Exactly. Any, any aspect of sovereignty, I think, right. is closer to the reality of God. Yeah. Well, well, think about it. God breathes down into his life. Exactly. Right? His priest that returned to him was suggested somebody initiated the theology itself. Probably the best... Yeah, probably the best evidence of the salvation of Nebuchadnezzar would be the progressive revelation of God in his life. You see it growing from the very beginning to this crescendo at this point, right? And this great proclamation. Now, you know I stand on the other side, right? That I'm the guy who really doubts whether this guy was truly saved or not. And let me, let me read a couple of things to you, and then we'll quit. But... Um, so I went and I read some of the dead guys because that's, that's what I do. And I'll read one that, that you'll recognize straight up. This is Calvin. Okay, this is what Calvin wrote about these verses. He says, Nebuchadnezzar does not here embrace the grace of God, which was worthy of no common praise and exaltation. And in this edict, he does not here describe what is required of a pious man long trained in God's school. Yet he shows he has had profited under God's rod by attributing to him the height and power. Besides this, he adds the praise of justice and rectitude while he confesses himself guilty and bears witness to the justice of the punishment that which had been divinely inflicted on him. So Calvin agrees with all those things we said that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this. He gets it right. He recognizes the justice of God. But Calvin's opinion, not this isn't God speaking, this is Calvin, says he doesn't go far enough because he doesn't recognize the grace of God. He forgets that part. So he recognizes the justice, but he doesn't recognize the grace. Calvin could be right or could be wrong. But that's, that's his opinion, thinking this guy probably was not a believer. Do you think that he's a little bit like 
Uh, who? Who? You talking about Nebuchadnezzar? Well, all right. Someone, someone who is regretful that they got caught, but would do it again in a heartbeat, reveals what about that person? Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Go, give me more detail. No righteousness of a heart. Heart hasn't been changed. That's what happens in salvation. The heart's changed. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I think we can go back to like a biblical example of, of another king. Sure. Well, you know, those words, don't those words mean that showing his heart? But, I mean, when King Saul was confronted by Samuel about his sin, about not carrying out the command of the Lord to slay Agog and all, and all that stuff. Right. Um, and Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. I mean, and, you know, of course, Samuel's response is that he rejects him. Um, I mean, later he does... Because uh, he does more evil. Right. I mean, Saul gave no evidence of repentance, mm -hmm. even though he was saying the right words and recognized the truth. I right, mean, right. Um, I don't... I mean, only the Lord knows whether Saul was a true believer, but I kind of don't think he was. Basically. Right. Even though he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Saul, right? I mean, one of those rare people in the Old Testament who was anointed... By the Spirit. Don't know it. Don't know exactly what that means, right? So don't don't go mystical on me. But David didn't, didn't uh, Samuel didn't he in his own fleshliness seek out Saul because of his height? He was six six and he towered over everyone else. He was enamored Saul with him. Saul, <laughs> sorry. Samuel spoke the word of God to Saul. Yes, that yes. judgment but was... Him out? Oh, sure. You could see him over there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. Well, I mean, it was the people that appreciated that Right. That's why he became their king, right? And then you got little runt David, smaller than his brothers, who becomes king. Right. right? Surely couldn't be this guy. of the, what we refer to as the prodigal son, particularly there in uh, Luke 15, 17, it says that he, like it says, actually, he came to the end of himself. Right. But what you don't see, if you compare those two, is any evidence from that point on. Right. And, and, and we don't know about Nebuchadnezzar, really. So you, you I don't know. My point, I mean, I don't, you can't draw hard and fast conclusions, and I would never condemn you for thinking that this probably is a saved guy. You just need to think about it. So to prick your, your heart and to prick your conscience so that in the people you do know, you can then begin to make godly evaluations. Not that you're going to judge them, but it causes some things to be questioned when you think rightly about salvation. Go ahead, Paul. Right, right, at the beginning. Talking about my God, yep. little G, and uh, spirit of the holy God. That's right, that's right. 
still holding on to the world a little bit. And I personally think yes. Yes, he, he recognized God's sovereignty. He gave him his due respect for humbling him, but he didn't go far enough. Yeah, you don't know, and we don't know how long Paul, I mean, how long Nebuchadnezzar lived after this. We don't have the details of this because it's seven periods of time and we don't know what that is. And so I think on purpose, God kind of left it like that, that we don't know. But, hey, I mean, give some evidence. This would be a guy that if he came to you and he said these kind of things, that you would encourage, that you would uh, be willing to strengthen and walk with him. But don't confirm, right? You should never confirm someone's salvation because you can't do that, right? And then you work with them and you walk with them. And over time, you can make a right judgment and he will show his true colors. Because you, I mean, you know, pray the prayer and you stand up and you're a believer, you're in the God's house now and all that crazy stuff. We can't do that. We, we don't have that authority to make that pronouncement. We don't have that um, uh, ability to see the heart and has it really changed or not. You can't do that. So don't do that. But walk with the guy and be willing to encourage because he may, you know, he may slip multiple times. You pick him up. And then over time, evidence will show itself. Go ahead, David. I just wanted to suggest an additional application being Peter's response in stating this character of God, that God opposes proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God mm-hmm. that he may exalt you in due time. That, that our personal, even as believers, response to this understanding of God's sovereignty, his power, is that we need to humble ourselves under him. And it says, clothe ourselves with humility. Yeah, this is part of that teaching of why it's hard for a rich man to be saved. Why? Because it's very difficult for him to be humble. It's very difficult. That's, self-abasement is a difficult thing. And so it's very difficult for a rich man. This is Christ's words. By the way, you're the rich man on the world standard. Right? You're, we're the rich people. Very difficult for us to humble ourselves to the degree that is required. Go ahead. And the difference between her blessing of God, but even she mentions in Luke um, that he scatters the proud in their imagination, he puts down the mighty from their thrones, and exalts the lowly. But then she goes on and speaks about that kind of personal humility. Right, about her. He does. Right, and he recognizes it. I mean, I would never debate that because he says it. But, you know, so if you read that, what you just said, Mary's Magnificat and and that statement, why in the world would you worship her? Yeah, it just never has made any sense to me. Why would you then worship this person who says, not because of me, but because of you? I, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. But that's where three-quarters of the world are at. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, we're just this little small drip. You understand that, right? 
and the vast majority of the of the world is wrapped up in in Catholicism and believes that we should worship Mary because Christ is too harsh and so you pray to her because so he won't slap you down I mean I'm you know, it's not me making that up. That's the Catholic doctrine. That's why they worship Mary, and that's why they pray to her, because Christ and God are too judgmental. But Mary would never do that. And it's craziness. But, I mean, especially after you read the Magnificat, why in the world would you go there? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. If you ever just read it and thought about it, they just don't. It's a blindness given by God. Go ahead. Yeah. Anybody? Final word. Final statement. The, the, the thing that I think rubs up against us because it's like the missing the last page of a book where you yeah. we want to we believe that Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. Absolutely. And it's hard for, it, I think it goes against our sense of right and just in the sense of somebody who would say this would not be a believer. But I think it, it can, that can take us away from even Daniel's purpose of our recognition for ourselves too that it could be God's sovereignty that an unjust person would say something right about God and he would still not, he would still use them, but he would still not be able to use them. And the reason I'm a little skeptical, okay, because I've heard people say very similar things about God and then ultimately walk away. If you've ever lived through that, then you become more skeptical. I'm sorry, it's just a reality of the, of the Christian faith. So if you see someone who had said all the right things and then ultimately, you know, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years later, walk away, it becomes very hard. Very hard. And so you wonder if, you know, you wonder about yourself more than you wonder about anybody. And we should. And we should. Thanks for your time.